Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to The Rest is Politics, Question Time, with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. So where do you want to start? Well, I think we we should start on um, New Year resolution, given that this is our New Year recording. Robbie Meeks, what should each main UK party leader have as a New Year's resolution? Okay, Rishi Sunak, start doing the job. Keir Starmer, more courage. Very good. I like I like those two. Another way of framing it is, given that we both think that Keir Starmer is going to be the next Prime Minister... Rishi Sunak, do all the things that you actually care about and believe in because you're not going to win the next election. So this is an opportunity to not worry about the politics and just get on with doing the right stuff. And Keir Starmer, given that you're going to be the next prime minister, come up with some pretty clear, bold ideas. Well, my big problem with that is that I think to fight a campaign, you have to have two mindsets running alongside each other. One is, I could still lose this if you're Keir Starmer. And Rishi Sunak, to fight a good campaign, has to get out of bed thinking he could win. So I wouldn't say to Rishi Sunak, it's all over, get stuff done. What I would say is you're in a difficult position and the best way to get out of it is to stop playing these silly political games. So you saw the debate over tax over the Christmas and New Year period. This whole debate about tax, inheritance tax, threshold levels and so forth was all about, and borrowing, how do we make this a trap for labour as opposed to kind of what's the right thing to do for the economy right now. And I think if Rishi Sunak tried to do the job seriously and properly, I think people are going to get really turned off by the whole thing being seen through this prism. That was the other reason why the Cummings thing was probably bad for him. And likewise, where I agree with you about Keir is have the mindset that says, I could be prime minister and I could get elected facing a multiple massive challenges. I have to have the outlines of the answers to those challenges now and campaign on those. And I think just a bit more boldness and a bit more courage. Very good. Okay. Now, Connor Murray, to what extent was Alistair a part of the discussions to relocate Wimbledon Football Club to Belfast after the Good Friday Agreement? Surely it can't have been a serious proposal. So just give us a bit of background on what this idea was, when it was, and what on earth the concept was. Well, I'm assuming, given that these are 
papers from, was it 20 years ago or 25 years ago? I guess 25 years ago, yeah. I've got to vague, this will sound ridiculous. If you're a passionate supporter of Wimbledon, it will sound ridiculous that I, I can't remember the detail very, very much. So what I do remember having a, a vague discussion about it with Sam Haman, who was the owner of Wimbledon. And this was at a time when Wimbledon was having to move um, for all sorts of historical reasons, again, vague on the detail. It was ground sharing with Crystal Palace, apparently, at the time. Yeah, they were ground sharing with Crystal Palace. That, for some reason, had to stop. They ended up moving to Milton Keynes, but somebody had the idea, what about moving Wimbledon to Northern Ireland so that the Northern Ireland felt it was part of the Premier League. That's right. Belfast would, would host a team in the Premier League. Correct. Correct. Now, whether they would stay there that long would be another matter, but it was definitely discussed. I don't think it got off the ground. It got further off the ground than the other ludicrous idea that I had of Rangers playing Celtic in Belfast, swapping their shirts before the game rather than after. That was definitely one of my crazier ideas. So this, first of all, Roy, this was not my idea specifically. Where it came from, I can't remember, but it was discussed. And I remember I went to a, I think it was Wimbledon against Manchester United. The reason I remember it is because Grace, my daughter, talks about it a lot because David Beckham touched her hair. Um, and that, that is a true story. David Beckham touched her hair. So she was very, very excited about that. But I, and I remember having a discussion with Sam Herman about it. I can't, to be honest, I can't even remember what he said, but I will have reported it back and that may have been in the papers. And um, what would have happened? I mean, I, I believe Wimbledon moving to Milton Keynes annoyed a lot of Wimbledon supporters and they went off to AFC Wimbledon. Presumably Wimbledon moving to Belfast would have annoyed a lot of Wimbledon supporters. They would have had to find a whole new support base. Yeah, it would. It would. No, the Milton Keynes story is an interesting one. There are still some people who won't go to Milton Keynes because they saw it as part of this sort of, you know, modern franchised football. Historical fact, Rui, I think the first game that they played at Milton Keynes was against Burnley. Um, uh -huh. Look, I'm sorry if I'm vague on the detail, but this is what's quite interesting about where these papers come out year after year after year. Um, there was a lot this year about my dispute with the BBC over Iraq. That was under the 20-year rule. There was also, there was, a, there was one in which Jeremy Haywood, who was a very senior civil servant, great guy, went on to be cabinet secretary, but he wrote a private memo to Tony Blair, which when you read it, the headlines all said he was being critical of me. In fact, he said that he was reporting criticisms, which he found to be monstrous, but he was pointing out right. that my media machine was in a bit of difficulty. So I guess you look at these things. You can, I don't go and look at the whole lot. There's, there are thousands of them that are put out there. Well, it's also fascinating for historians, isn't it? Because oh, yeah. it's a sort of reminder that actually talking to one of the key players 25 years later doesn't always help you as much as you'd think because people's memories aren't quite what they were. I mean, I, I feel this now that if someone interviews me about what I was doing in Iraq in 20 years ago, I'm not sure I'm the most reliable witness anymore because a lot no. of things get sort of muddled and confused in my own mind. No, and also, you know, I, I'm, I'm really bad at years. I'm really bad at remembering, you know, exactly when something was and where it fitted into a pattern. And also because I'm away at the moment, so I don't have, <laughs> don't have access to my diaries, I probably could have looked up Sam Haman, Wimbledon, and see whether I put anything in my diary. That might have triggered a memory. Would it be a wholly accurate memory? Not necessarily. So I think you're right about historians. I think the reason why this whole sort of WhatsApp culture is a bit of a problem for historians is that one, you have situations where the records are not being kept properly. There is no proper archive of discussions and meetings. And even like, so I, I said, for example, you know, I, I bumped into Sam Haman at a football match. So I might have got home 
you're waited till the Monday morning. That was a Saturday. You might have waited till the Monday morning. Fire off a very short note recording the meeting. That would be broadly accurate given it was so soon in your memory. But if you then, 10 years later, it becomes controversial for some reason or it gets involved in a public inquiry, do you really remember or are you remembering fragments based upon the record that already exists? It's a very, yeah. it's a very interesting thing. And that's why people, you know, we, we should keep proper records of, of discussions. But I've never read a, if you look at the minutes of cabinet meetings from that time, when they get published, they don't really reflect the discussion. They, they, they sort of, they give you a line of what somebody said and then a line of what somebody else said. Well, I mean, that's the great trick of the civil servants, isn't it? I mean, my father was the um, secretary of the Joint Intelligence Committee when he was the civil servant. And he was brutally honest about the fact that he was determined that the committee minutes would always reflect his conclusions. And he would arrange <laughs> the entire committee around that. And then he would draft it and send it off and nobody would bother to read it. And they'd sign off and he'd get authorization to do almost whatever he wanted. Is that why he didn't get the top job? <laughs> exactly. Probably why he didn't get the top job. Um, question from Jilly. Why do the inspectors insist upon disturbing a school, its staff and pupils, rather than just getting an honest assessment of what normally happens? When I was principal of a sixth form college and an inspection loomed, I decided not to tell the teachers so as not to disturb their teaching. I told the inspectors when they arrived, they would see all the teaching as it always was, not specially reorganized for them. They were not pleased. The result was nine out of 10 for teaching quality, but two out of 10 for admin. I was delighted. Ah, oh, interesting. We, we talked about this just before Christmas when we had that awful story of the suicide of a, of a head teacher whilst a pretty difficult inspection was going on. I think we do have to look at this inspection business. I mean, I know a lot less about this than, than Fiona because she's been chair of governors of several schools, but every time you get the word there's going to be an Ofsted, it sort of sends the school into a kind of, not chaos, but you all attention goes on that because it's so important. The outcome is is so important. And you know, there is more to a school that I think than I think getting a sense of the school is as important as some of the box ticking that, that gets done. So I think I actually think it's it'd be good if, if Labour do come in, that they back the principle of school inspection and of school grading. But I think that it should be less blunt than we have now. And I think that we do need to we do need to rethink the way that these inspections are done because you, it's very rare that you hear head teachers and teachers describing it as anything other than a pretty unhealthy process. Now, here's one for you, Rory. This is a question from Fionn Kelly. What did you make of Michael Higgins' Christmas speech where he thanked migrants for enriching Ireland's culture? I don't know if you saw it, Rory, but it was a very interesting New Year's message. Now, he's the president, so he's not the kind of yeah. the T-shirt, yep. but it was a paean of praise to the people who have made Ireland what it is, who've come from abroad. And very relevant because there had been that outbreak, outbreak of violence in Ireland, which yeah. remind people of. Well, that was when there was a, a violent attack in the centre of Dublin and all sorts of false rumours spread about who, what was involved and, and so forth. And, and before you knew it, there were riots on the streets. So he was, he was basically talking both about the fact that so many Irish people have known what it's like to be migrants to other parts of the world and the contribution they've made there, but also very specific about the contribution that current migrants are making to Irish culture, Irish economy, Irish society. We'll put it in the, in the, the newsletter, but it was a very, it's a different sort of New Year's message to many that you see. Well, here's, here's a nasty one which has come in. Jamie Pryor, following what happened on Christmas Day, what can the international community do about the murder of Christians in Nigeria? doesn't seem to be getting any media coverage at all. That's right. Over Christmas, sort of 
I think Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, about 140 Nigerian Christians in villages in the north of Nigeria were killed in attacks by Islamist militants in what seems to have been reprisal attacks from another series of attacks on December the 3rd against um, Islamic festival celebrants in, in Kaduna. And there's allegations that the government of Nigeria has been backing these different militant groups. Um, it's very, very disturbing. I mean, the previous killing on December 3rd was Nigerian airstrikes by the government, and this seems to be these Fulani militia, who, which is part of a general story, northern Nigeria and across the Sahel that we've talked about, about conflict mm. between uh, nomadic communities and, and settler communities. Um, Nigeria now leading the world in, in attacks on uh, religious minority groups. Yeah. I um, I saw the question when I was looking through some of the questions as they came in, and I didn't know anything about, I didn't know this had happened. Um, and so I looked it up, and when I looked up the news coverage of it, almost all of it was from Christian organizations. So there was a big piece in the Catholic Herald. There was a, a, a huge piece about the background to it in one of the American Christian newsletter, magazine-type things. And one of the points they were making, which is the point that comes through in, in Jamie's question, is that this appears to be happening without anybody outside the Christian communities, and particularly in the countries where it's happening, actually seeming to give a damn. And one of the, the stories, I mean, that you do sometimes have to feel for Joe Biden or whoever happens to be president of America, because one of the, the stories that was, it was leading on the fact, you know, why is Biden saying nothing? Why is Biden doing nothing? And when you look at the, the trend of this, there does seem to be an awful lot of killing going on. And when I dug a little bit deeper, where there was some coverage of it in, you know, newspapers in Australia or America or South Africa, wherever it might be, and in the UK, I think the Guardian did a piece, the tendency tended to be to make it a story about climate change. In other words, there, there were the, these were disputes over land and water. Whereas what the Christian community seems to be saying is this is the deliberate wiping out of a Christian community. So I'm a little bit ashamed to say I didn't have a I'm absolutely one of the people Jamie's targeting this question at. Why is there so little coverage? I'm glad that you read his question out and that we've been able to debate it. But it does seem to be something that is not being taken as seriously as it should be. Then we have a question about Simon McDonald. So Simon McDonald was the head of the Foreign Office when I was a Foreign Office Minister, and he's just written an essay. So this is Lewis Souter. What do you think of Simon McDonald's essay in the Literary Review suggesting Russia and UK rotate seats on the UN Security Council and that the UK gives its seat to the EU? This was a much broader essay by Simon McDonald, uh, now Lord McDonald, given that we were talking yesterday about peerages. So he was the permanent head of the Foreign Office. I think he was married to the daughter of a previous permanent head of the Foreign Office. He, a very sort of old-fashioned central casting diplomat, and it reveals an enormous amount about the way that professional diplomats view Britain's role. Because in this essay, he basically says Britain is not coming to terms with the fact that it's a declining power. He says that our influence on the world needs to be more soft power, which is this phrase from the Harvard professor Joe Nye all about using cultural, linguistic, other informal power rather than hard power. Cultural superpower, Rory. That's what we need to be. Well, I thought it was fascinating because I ran, had real run-ins with Simon McDonald, particularly around Zimbabwe, where I was trying to suggest that we combine with other countries to try to encourage fairer elections in Zimbabwe. And he basically was saying to friends, uh, Rory is too much of an idealist. So there's, there's a very thin line within the what Simon's saying and the culture he created in the Foreign Office between realism and cynicism taken too far 
Simon's view often seemed to me, well, there's not much we can do about the world anyway. There's not much that Britain can do to influence it. It's all about soft power. And soft power, almost by definition, has very little to do with the Foreign Office because it's to do with what other bits of cultural life do. I mean, I, I think you need to have a Foreign Office that wants to influence the world, even if it acknowledges its capacity to do so as less than it was. Yeah. We have talked, though, before about the construction of the United Nations Security Council. And I think we are both of the view that if you were devising it today, you wouldn't have the setup that you have now with the five major post-war powers. But how would you even begin to start? Let's just take one part of his proposal. Russia and the UK kind of rotate their place on the Security Council. Well, it is completely ridiculous. It's entirely insane. You couldn't even begin that discussion, probably. No, no, it'd be completely mad because you'd go from Russia's default position, which is generally against the US, to the UK's default position, which is very pro-US. You'd have an absurd rotation where, you know, every, however, I don't know how often they were going to rotate, you'd go from veto to non-veto, veto to non-veto. And there's mm. absolutely no way that Russia would ever accept it, whatever yeah. the UK felt. He was also, Simon McDonald was, he was one of the people who played a pretty big part in the end of Johnson, didn't he? He did, because he pointed out that he'd warned Johnson about Chris Pincher. Yeah. and said he shouldn't appoint him. He's also been very brutal about Liz Truss. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit divided on this question because, of course, I agree with Simon MacDonald strongly on his criticisms of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. On the other hand, he is a career civil servant. The civil service is really meant to be politically impartial. He was the permanent secretary, so he was right at the top of the foreign office. And I don't like the emerging culture, which I'm seeing more and more, of permanent secretaries gossiping, going out in public, talking about what's happening inside government. We saw this with all the WhatsApps during COVID. We've seen this with Simon Case, who I think has been a very worrying permanent secretary. But I've seen a number of permanent secretaries recently. And the culture of kind of gossiping and slagging off your bosses is developing a lot. And I would like to see somebody come in and say, wait a sec, that's not how we do things. We are going to mm. be discreet. We're going to be understated. We may share these thoughts in private, but the point of being a permanent secretary is not to be a sort of outspoken political commentator. You'd presumably agree. That is why the leadership that's given from the top is so important and so fundamental. I can remember speaking to somebody pretty high up in the Foreign Office during Johnson's tenure, who said, you know, it's so difficult to do this job when you are essentially watching the person at the head of the organization, the politician who's meant to be leading it, who's out there saying things which aren't true or doing things which are not in line with agreed foreign policy. So you then put yourself in the position. I mean, I broadly agree with you, but where I think these guys have been in a very difficult position for the last few years, particularly since Johnson, is that they're watching, they're being told to do things which go against what they think their job is. So, for example, being told to say things that aren't true or to defend things which they know to be indefensible. So I think that's where he, why he wanted to criticise over Pinch. I guess the culture of senior civil service is changing too, because they're also being encouraged to be more outspoken, more human, more relatable, funnier with their staff. So there's a change also in the type of way they're supposed to behave. Ministers like them to be warmer, more gossipy, more informal. Mm. And, and I think there's a cost to that. I mean, but if you think back to it, Richard Wilson, who was your permanent secretary, Jonathan Powell, your friend, and Richard Wilson didn't always see eye to eye. But as mm -hmm. far as I know, Richard Wilson would never have gone out afterwards and then made a series of public statements trying to expose things he disagreed with or put up no. policy statements. Or, or, no, but we had then a prime minister who expected us, the special advisors, the political side of the operation, he saw it as part of our job to make sure we got on pretty well with the senior civil service, even if we disagreed at times. 
Whereas I think yeah. what you have, you, the other thing that you hear from the civil service at the moment is of these pretty young, inexperienced special advisors who wander around Whitehall like they own the place, which is, again, not a very sensible way to conduct yourself. Well, Alistair, should we take a quick break? Okay. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, here's one from Rod. Are you feeling positive for 2024, or do you have a sense of impending doom? <sighs> I feel pretty doom-laden, to be honest. You feel pretty doomy. I'm, I think that I can put an optimistic spin on things. Go so on. my optimistic spin is going to be this. I think there's still a good chance that Biden will win the election, and that will be against Trump, and that will be a huge boost. I think we could see positive change in South Africa. I think we could see positive change in Europe. And I think it could be the great election year, which determines a less populist, more liberal future. So that, that, that's the best case scenario I can push. But Okay. And where would you put AI into all that? Well, that's where I get a bit gloomy, because I do think this will also be the year where AI will dominate elections in a way that we can't even begin mm. to imagine. You found rather an interesting example, didn't you, from Singapore of yes, AI being used? I did. It was the prime minister in, in we've, we've talked a lot about, I think it was his New Year's address. He, he warned the public about AI because what had happened is that an organization, I presume criminal, I don't know, but somebody had put together a completely fake video of the prime minister who's very popular for a long serving prime minister who's pretty popular. And it was him essentially promoting a financial venture. A sort of financial scam, yeah. He was out there sort of urging people to invest in something. And when you watch it, I mean, it's, I've met him and I know what he speaks like and I know what he sounds like. Yep. You'd have to be very, you'd have to basically be his wife, I think, to know this is not him. Well, this is what we've talked about, haven't we? With AI, what's so clever about it is that what people have worked out is the way they blacken politicians' names now is not to sort of invent something completely off the scale, like show them having, I don't know, naked and bed with someone. Instead, it's all these things that almost plausible. You know, a yeah. politician endorses a slightly dubious financial company or Keir Starmer and one of the AI fakes shouting at an aide for dropping an iPad. Yeah. Um, or, or sometimes it's just cutting film. Poor Rishi Sunak, you know, there's been this viral thing of him banging a, a nail with the side of a hammer. When it turns out, if you look at the full clip, the woman, for some reason, has told him to bang the nail with the side of the hammer. Yeah, that's not <laughs> AI, though. That's just cruel editing. No, no, that's not AI. No, that's, that's just, just ways of clipping things up. But it's the general sort of fake news thing that you undermine people, not necessarily with the most kind of blatant thing, but something that's sort mm. of faintly funny, faintly plausible, just on the edge. Yeah. Look, I'm always very doomy and gloomy at this time of year. I don't know why. It's a sort of, I, I always have a bit of a plunge around Christmas, New Year. And um, this has been no exception. And it's interesting. So you said to put a positive spin in it, Trump could be beaten by Biden. When I'm in the sort of mood I'm in now, I I see Trump winning. And that makes me very, very gloomy. Um, and I do think of all the elections that we're, that we're facing, that is the one that's going to have the most profound significance 
And um, we've got to start thinking about how, how, how the world handles that. If you think of the, of the issues that we've been discussing in the last couple of days, Taiwan, um, you talked about, you know, American interests in, in relation to Africa and China. You know, th- there's so much that a change of American leadership has the potential for profound impact. So, I, you know, you said in our end of year review that, you know, the single most important person in the world is the one who can stop Trump becoming president. And I completely agree with that. So at the moment, I'm a bit gloomy. But Rory, what happens is I get through this New Year gloom and then I'll be back firing on all cylinders by the middle of January and then I'll be positive again. Um, Japan's lack of growth. Andy Davis, you regularly mention Japan's 30-year lack of growth and aging population. You never say why this is a problem. What are the implications? What has the impact been? Japan's still seen as a well-off country. So does Japan show that growth isn't actually that important to an economy stroke society? Well, it's a really good challenge. And my friend Felix Martin often points this out, that if your population is declining at the same time as your growth is stagnating, your wealth per capita per person doesn't go down. So the average person doesn't feel worse off. And in reverse, I used to think about this when I was an MP in Cumbria, when people talked about growth. If you get economic growth, but at the same time, a huge increase in the number of people, you can end up in a situation where you technically have growth, but each individual feels worse off. So some ways, I mean, I was in Japan, as you know, last year, you do feel that Japan is doing okay. It's still got some very impressive companies. It's a very, very impressive traditional society. It just doesn't feel dynamic. I think that's what happens as you get a more aging population. And I think young Japanese feel this. It, it doesn't, you know, in a way that California really feels like it's the kind of center of things or India feels it's the center of things. Japan has a lot of sort of wisdom, uh, a lot of cultural beauty, but it just doesn't feel like a place that's really driving the world. But maybe maybe one doesn't want that. Well, although we, we, we talked in the main podcast about Taiwan, and one of the issues that's been not central to the debate, but it's been a part of the election debate, is the the sense that the falling, the declining birth rate there is becoming what they see as a national security issue. And part of the policy agenda has been the offering of all sorts of incentives for, for people to have bigger families. Because they see the threat from China, they see the worry ab- about you know needing a more militaristic future for Taiwan. You you talk about in Japan the debate in Japan. It's seen as a sort of broadly economic issue where how do you how do you care for a, a, an aging population, which is the challenge we're facing as well. And there you are in Taiwan, where the same debate is at the centre of the election campaign, but it relates to national the future of your national security. So that whole thing about demographics and population growth and lack of is probably going to feature in quite a lot of the elections we're going to talk about this year. Okay, Rory, here's one. The Mad Monk. Should Labour pledge to appoint a commission to investigate Russian influence on Brexit and the democratic process? Should, can they also pledge to remove unsuitable recent appointments to the House of Lords? We talked about that yesterday. An overall anti-Tory corruption department to dismantle what's been put in place. Now, Labour have said that they're going to have this sort of COVID recovery commission. So people who will go after the money that's been lost to what they define as, as COVID corruption. But what do you think? I mean, I do feel, I know people think I'm a bit obsessed about this, but I do think the Brexit debate is, there's so many un finished, so much unfinished business within that and so many loose ends that have not yet been fully untangled that relate to some of the the lies told, the crimes committed and so forth. So do you think we just let sleeping dogs lie or do people, th- do you think that we actually ought to 
look at this as part of the healing of our politics? Well, I, I think we definitely need to clean up public life. I'm violently in agreement with you on putting the Nolan Principle central and making Keir Starmer really campaign on a better values-based approach to government. I think the bit that worries me a little bit is an anti-Tory corruption department, because I think that uh, the Tories have done terrible things, but I also think that Labour governments have not always had a great record on this stuff. And I think the real danger around the world is that you turn into party politics what should be something that is for the good of whole society. We see this most dramatically in almost every country we cover with governments coming in with majorities and trying to use the judiciary and the law mm. to go after their political opponents. So I, I think the way to do this for Starmer is to make it absolutely clear that this is nonpartisan and he is going to be as brutal with any examples of labor corruption as he is with Tory corruption. So I, I agree, but that line, an anti-Tory corruption department is a bit worrying. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I also think if you are going to look at Vote Leave campaign, there were some very significant labor figures attached to that as well. But I do think it's pretty remarkable that we've had this, one of the biggest events in our history <laughs> ever with profound impacts upon so many aspects of our lives. And it's like the elephant in the room. It's the, <laughs> we still don't really talk about it. And I find that very, very worrying. And I think that there does have to be some kind of reckoning over Brexit, how it came about, and what it's now doing to our, to our country. And I hope actually Labour will at least address it. I think they should address it during the campaign, but it's pretty clear to me they're not going to. But I think to have had something that's done so much damage to the country and it's we just sort of shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, that was then and this is now, is what it is, let's move on. I think it's pretty alarming. My last question, Rory, is to you, Stephen Clark. What will you miss from the Conservatives? Assuming this is the last year of this government, can you think of one thing you will miss about the Conservatives in power? Well, that's that's a hell of a challenge. I mean, I went from coming in under David Cameron and being proud of a lot of the efforts that Theresa May meant, uh, made to being profoundly ashamed by Boris Johnson and beyond embarrassed and humiliated by Liz Truss to a sense that Rishi Sunak is diligent, trying to do his best, but with all the problems that you've identified. Um, I think it's difficult for me now to feel that there are sort of great achievements of the Conservative government, partly because Boris Johnson and Liz Truss reversed almost everything that David Cameron and Theresa May were trying to do. I mean, I guess gay marriage um, was passed and has remained and has not been reversed. I'm very, very sad, though, that nobody's pointed out that everybody said we would return to spend 0.7% on international aid when the fiscal situation allowed. We've now been through one budget where there was £20 billion worth of headroom, and that was put into tax cuts. We've now got a spring statement coming where it looks like it's going to be another 15 billion worth of headroom. And neither the Conservatives nor, I'm afraid, Labour have said, wait a sec, we said when the fiscal situation allowed, we'd return to 0.7%. Clearly, the fiscal situation now allows and nobody's asking for it. So that'll be one thing. I think the second thing is we won't really know this until Labour's in power. And the question will be, when we've a year into the Keir Starmer government, will we begin to note that there were some things that Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt were doing that we're going to miss. But at the moment, it's difficult. Mm. Right. Well, that wasn't the ringing endorsement for the <laughs> return of a Conservative government, for sure. 
Sebastian Coe was the same, wasn't he? In our interview with Seb Cohen leading, he was. He said that if he, he doesn't vote because he's now in the House of Lords, but if he did, he said he'd sort of vote Tory because he's basically still a Conservative. But he basically says he thinks they're finished. I'm still of that view that you should never write them off. I mean, I've seen too often the Conservatives finding something, but it does look pretty bleak at the moment. Okay, now final final question for me. Half woman, half mince pie. Please, can you do an episode of Good News? I'm getting so depressed with all the awful news. It'd be great to show us we're not completely doomed as a world. Reasons to be hopeful. So I think we should take that challenge on. We've often said we'd do an episode on Good News. We've never managed it, but I think we're going to make an effort. We've also often said that we might interview um, our wives, Shoshana and Fiona, on the show, because in many ways they're doing more interesting things than either of us. And I, I might encourage us to return to that idea as well if they're up for it. That, that could end up being very depressing. And what, if they told the, what if they told the truth about what they think about us? <laughs> that, that could be depressing, I agree. I think, by the way, the original idea was not that we interview them, it was that they do an episode. They do an episode, yeah. It yeah. was a very, yeah. I must say, that when we did the Alba Hall, there was a very revealing uh, insight into our various partnerships with your wife, Shoshana, and my civil partner, I believe the phrase is Fiona, when unbeknownst to us, the production team got them to ask a question in front of 6,000 people that was pre-filmed. So Shoshana comes on and says, hey, babe. Does she always say, hey, babe, Rory? Hey, babe, she said. <laughs> Fiona's never said, hey, babe, to, hey, babe, to be. Hey, babe, um, you've been thinking a lot about gratitude. Tell me about all the things you're grateful for. And you then answer that very, very nice. And then Fiona comes on and says, right, enough of rest is politics. What about the rest is housework? What is the dishwasher program that I use at the end of the day? <laughs> to which I sadly did not know the answer. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that could be an interesting episode. It was one of, one of the few cases where I really felt that I was doing better than you on message discipline. <laughs> <laughs> what if, if we were doing good news today though let's let's try if we were to say right four themes where we talk about good news we could have for example let's we, we could have started with the honors and said let's just talk about six people in the honors list who are just fantastic people could have done that yep uh, we could have talked about the house of lords in the context of changes that the house of lords have made to legislation in recent years which has improved it yep. we could have done and, that. and the fact that the house of lords is of course what's going to be there to improve the rwanda legislation and the house of lords yeah. basically has stood between us and a lot of bad legislation over many many yeah. years we could have actually picked on president higgins new year's message and analyzed that and taken it apart as from a positive perspective about a political leader with a positive message about immigration yeah we could talk about um the loss and damage fund that was set up out of cop we could have talked about some of the recent medical breakthroughs. I mean, there's some wonderful good news on the way that AI, new understandings of genetics are leading to amazing medical breakthroughs. I mean, we, there are now, we've got far more understanding of Alzheimer's than we did. There's this amazing weight loss drug, which with some caveats is making an incredible difference and may well deal with a lot of the issues of diabetes across the world. So I think medical science is amazing. I think the progress on AI with all its dangers, can have an incredible productivity benefit. Um, yeah, let, let's try to do a bit of positive stuff sometime. We'll do it. We'll, 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 we'll put that together in the near future with many, many thanks. What was the name of the questioner again? They're all sort of strange names these days. It was half a great, man, great half names. Half pie, was it? Half woman, half mince pie, I think. I wonder whether she, she took that name after Christmas, presumably. I think it probably has something to do with Christmas. Yeah. All right, Roy, I think we're done. Thank you very much, Alistair, and speak next week. See you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. 
you were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.